0: Welcome. My name is Julian Schlossberg, and the name of our show is Movie Talk. My guest today is Marlo Thomas, my dear friend, the winner of countless awards an actress, a producer, an author, a social activist, the winner of four, not one, two, three, four Emmys, a Golden Globe, a Peabody, a Grammy and, of course, the Presidential Medal of Freedom. So I'm going to ask Marlo to join us. And I want to know, Marlo, did you always want to be an actress, always from the very beginning?
1: Yeah, I I think so. My favorite thing when I was a kid was going to the studio with my father. This is before Take Your Daughters to Work Day. This was uh, (laughs) when I I was about seven. He was making movies with Margaret O'Brien. He made two in that year and so he would take me to work and one of them was in the summer and it was it was at MGM and we had so much fun and my father was not a, a helicopter father so I would just run through the studio and go to all the stages you know where people were making movies there was Carrie Grant and that woman he was married to Betsy Drake was that her name
0: that was her name Yeah.
1: yeah they were there and they had a And she had this little dressing room that had a sort of a picket fence around it. And and then, of course, Margaret had a fabulous dressing room where we used to play jacks in between scenes. And it was just so much fun. And we go to the commissary and I'd sit next to a man dressed like a pirate. I mean, my God, (laughs) It it was so much fun.
0: Well, we should point out that your dad was Danny Thomas, the incredible comedian and producer, and a a man who starred in nightclubs, television, and movies, and also produced the Dick Van Dyke show, the Andy Griffith show, the Real McCoys. We're not kidding around. This was number he was always in the top ten with Make Room for Daddy, which I grew up with. And I love the fact I love the fact that you go to the studio. With your dad, and you go, and he's shooting a film with the great Michael Curtiz. Will you tell us about that?
1: Uh, I used to sit on his lap, and um, Curtiz. Yeah, and he had this very thick Hungarian accent, and he would say, "Cut, printed, very good. We we'll try it again." <laughs> uh, and I would sit on his lap, and he, you know, would shake his hand around and, "Cut, printed, very good. We we'll try it again." And so. I heard that like all summer. And then uh my grandparents were visiting us that summer, and my grandfather was a humorless man. It's interesting that his son, you know, Danny Thomas, was this very funny guy. And my dad was funny all the time. He was funny at home. He did all kinds of tricks and things on us. He just was a funny guy. And his father had no humor. And so he was always Bossing my father around, telling him that he didn't do something right, especially with his children, because we were, you know, crazy, wild kids making jokes all the time. So anyway, I wasn't eating my food as usual. And you know, to this day, I'm not a good eater. No, you're not. (laughs) I was pushing my food around the plate. And my father said to me, eat your string beans and eat your lamb chop and whatever. And I was still pushing the food around the plate and taking a few things and putting them in my pocket, whatever I could do not (laughs) to have to eat anything. And at one point, my grandfather said in Arabic, who's was Lebanese, to my father, your children don't listen to you. And that was really embarrassed, my father. So he jumped up from the table and started yelling at me. And he scared me, and I was only like seven years old or so. And he chased me around the table, and I thought, I thought to myself, to make himself look good, he's going to hit me in front of you know his father. So anyway, I'm running, and I got stuck in a corner, and I thought, oh my god, I'm stuck. And I turned around and I said, cut, printed, very good. We try it again. And my <laughs> father <laughs> fell over laughing. I mean, he he buckled. Floor. he just laughed so hard you know and i i always knew if i could make him laugh i could get out of anything but my grandfather was just disgusted at the two of us because yeah. <laughs> he made my father laugh instead of getting spanked and you know all the things that he thought should have happened yeah. but
0: i bet he i bet he wasn't that thrilled about you being an actress though or was he
1: my grandfather
0: no not your grandfather your dad
1: no, no, he, he was very clear that he didn't want me to be an actress. He didn't, uh, you know, my godmother was Loretta Young, and she'd had a rough time of it. She had a couple of marriages and an out-of-wedlock child and lots of rumors and affairs and whatever. So he always said it was a rotten business for a woman. And also he felt that, he said to me, that his first 15 years were so difficult that he just couldn't relive that with somebody he loved. He just, you know, he said, it's it's not easy, and I don't think lightning is going to strike twice in the same family. He said, it's just, the, the odds are just against anybody, but that we're going to have two successful actors in the same family. I said, well, the Barrymores did, you know.
0: <laughs> but um, uh,
1: anyway, so he was really, he was not for it. But he came to see me. In school plays, he came to. I I did Gigi, at the Laguna Playhouse that Betty Davis had founded, a beautiful little playhouse in Laguna Beach, and uh, California, and he came to see me in that, and I got the most amazing reviews. Even Variety said that I was, you know, that Danny Thomas didn't worry about his daughter; she was going to be a star. And he said to I me, mean, "This doesn't mean anything," you know. He kept mm-hmm. telling me that, and. Yeah. Uh, and it wasn't, but he was proud of me. I, I could tell he thought I was good. And he said to my mother, you know, she's got the bug. Oh, God, you know. And so <laughs> then when I, when I went to London to do Barefoot in the Park, and he and my mother came to see me, as they always did. I mean, they went to Laguna. They were certainly going to come to London. And we had a huge hit. Neil Simon was in the audience, and he was very pleased and Afterward, my mother and father came into the dressing room and my mother was like a, a, like a stork. I mean, she was all over me, hugging and kissing me. She was so excited. My father sat down with an unlit cigar in his mouth and looked like a beached whale. He just <laughs> I looked at him and I thought, the only thing I see on this man's face is not pride, is relief. He just feels <laughs> relieved. You know?
2: Yeah.
1: Yes. I knew that he had done every moment of that performance with me and had sweated it out. And then it was a huge hit. I mean, Barefoot in the Park was a wonderful comedy. It was a perfect part for me. Daniel Massey was the was the Robert Redford part. And and it was it was it was a great night with many standing ovations and all that. So it was obvious. It was going to be a hit in London, as it had been in New York. So my father felt then that, you know, maybe I was going to be okay.
0: Well, we better go back a bit, though, because Barefoot in the Park, you've paid your dues before Barefoot in the Park. You've done, uh, as you started out at Laguna, but you're doing Bonanza, and you're doing all these television shows, and the Bonanza story just knocks me out because... They, what they want you to play in Bonanza. Would you tell that story? Well, yeah, well, you couldn't do it today. I mean, my Could God, you'd get,
1: you'd get boycotted. Well, I was doing a play on uh, La Sienica in Los Angeles. There was a little playhouse there called the Civic Playhouse. And John Aniston, Jennifer's father, played my brother. He was a pilot. And I was his sister. I don't even remember what the play was about. But there, and there was a leading man and a whole lot of other characters. It was, it had played in New York. It was called Sunday in New York, and, and we we had a nice little hit on our hands. And David Dortort, who the the boys on the Ponderosa called David Dogturd, uh, was uh, was in the audience one night, and he came backstage and he asked me if I could do a Chinese accent. Well, you know that there isn't an actor alive that says they can't do something. I said, oh, yes, of course, I could do a Chinese accent. Uh, and he had written a part for Pat Suzuki, who's actually not Chinese, she's Japanese. But uh, anyway, and they, the story was that Haas had written away for firecrackers or something in China, and instead they sent him a mail-order bride. And that was going to be the Pat Suzuki part. And then she unionizes the Ponderosa. So it's a very (laughs) funny, fiery, revolutionary kind of girl. But he can't find a Chinese girl in Los Angeles that's got the kind of fireworks that that Pat Suzuki had. And she couldn't come. She had strep throat or something. She couldn't fly. And so he said, I need somebody like you. You know, I need somebody with a fire in her like you have. I said, oh, yeah, no problem. So uh, <laughs> so I called Sandy Meisner, who I had studied with at 20th Century Fox and put a bunch of young people under contract for Sandy Meisner to teach, which was a brilliant idea. Um, uh, anyway, I was in that class. So he'd gone back to New York. So I called him and I said, I've got this job and, I'm, and I need a Chinese accent. How do I get one? He said, go to Afong's. Afong is a was a restaurant. I wonder if it's still there on Cannon Drive in Beverly Hills. It was a nice little Chinese restaurant, like the size of Nate Nows, that little kind of place. Yeah. And he said, and asked the the waitress if she'll come home with you and you can record her reading your part. Well I mean the fact that I could, you know, proposition a girl to come to my apartment <laughs> and, uh. and read my part, which she did. She's nothing of it. I mean, this is before all the bad stuff hit Hollywood, I guess. So I I, I asked her how much she'd want. I think it was like $150 to come to, 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 come to, to my apartment and do it. And I, I was happy to pay it. And so I did it. I don't know if you've ever seen it, but it's the worst Chinese accent you'll ever hear. But uh, I got away with it. But then when they went to do my makeup, there was no way they could get my round eyes to go oval. They just wouldn't go, <laughs> and they put all kinds of that they called appliances on the top of your lid. Well, then I couldn't even open my eyes, and and they did test after test, and I thought, oh, oh I'm going to lose this part. And then they finally decided that they wanted me to play it, but I they couldn't get my eyes to be oval enough, and so they did what they could. With makeup, and then they said I had a Persian mother. <laughs> <laughs> a oh Persian. God!
0: No, no, you know, as the lyric goes, "Those were the days, my friend." Yeah, I, know. <laughs> I mean,
1: you could not do that today. I mean, really. oh no, my God,
0: no! You, well, you'd never be up for it. You wouldn't even be up for it. No, he, he'd have to I mean. wait for have to wait for Pat to get her throat back.
1: Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah.
0: Tell me about. Wait a second. You jumped to Baffert in the Park. How the hell do you get the lead in Baffert in the Park coming off with a Persian mother?
1: I know, yeah. uh, the old-fashioned way, Julian. I read for it. It was really interesting. I stood in a line outside of the. I don't know the name of the theater then. It's the, I think the Doolittle now. And uh, we, we we stood in line, and a man came out and gave everybody a number. And my number corresponded with a young actor who turned out to be Marty Milner. And we had the sides that we were to read. And so we shook hands and went over in a corner by a tree and sort of read the lines together. And, you know, one by one, the young couples who were all nobody, you know, were all going to stand in line. And we knew that in the theater was Neil Simon, Mike Nichols and St. Suber, the producer. And so we went in, and we read it, and uh, Mike jumped up on the stage and said, Who are you? What, what, where have you been? What have you been doing? Have you seen the play? And I said, No, no, the play was in New York. I, no, I hadn't seen it. He, he said, Well, I'd like, I'd like to give you a little direction, which is always a good sign. If a director yeah. gives you a direction, it means he wants to see something that he wants to see. I don't remember what the direction was, but whatever it was, I did it, and the next day my agent called and told me I got the part. I was beside myself. It was was going to be the New York replacement for Elizabeth Ashley. I was beyond Broadway. My God, I couldn't stand it. I was so excited. And a couple of days later I heard, no, no, that's not what you were reading for. Her understudy, Penny Fuller, is taking the Broadway production. You were reading for the part of the national company to go on the road for a year, oh. so I said, oh, i I, I can't do that." They said, "What do you mean you can't do that?" I said, "Well, I'll tell you something. I'm Danny Thomas's daughter, and there isn't anything I do that doesn't go go there. Uh, you know, how, what is it like being Danny Thomas's daughter? Do you think you'll be as good as he is? Are you as funny? Will you last as long? I mean, it was a nightmare. Every review, every interview, and I said, I, I, I cannot travel this country for a year answering those questions. It will kill me. It'll break my spirit. I won't do it. Oh, you'll never work in New York. Nobody'll ever believe in you. Blah 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 blah. This is the biggest break. So, just out of curiosity, I said, Who did the end bankrupt? national company of Two for the Seesaw. No answer.
0: <laughs> and no
1: idea. You know, the national company does not necessarily. Maybe the right person sees you. But anyway, so I didn't do it. And they told me I'd never work again. And nobody in New York, the word would get around that I wasn't serious, whatever it was. But I, I knew I couldn't do it. And then I read that there was going to be a London company. So I called Mike Nichols. I mean, you know, I thank God I had chutzpah. Uh, yes. oh, I still have chutzpah, but anyway, I called him from a payphone in the village and he took my call, which startled me. I mean, I was, I figured it, I'm going to have to call a hundred times, took my call and I said, oh, Mr. Nichols, thank you so much for taking my call. Do you remember me? He said, yeah, I remember you. Yeah. You're wonderful. Yeah. I remember you. I said, well, I read there's going to be a London company. Is there a possibility that, that I could audition for that? And he said, oh, that's a good idea. Uh, let me call you. So the days went by, and then my agent called me and said, uh, they're just going to give you the part.
2: because yeah. they had already,
1: Yeah, I had already auditioned for all the three people, you know, for yeah. Mike and, and St. Suber and Neil. And, um, in fact, Neil offered me the movie. That was a, one of the heartbreaks of my young career, that I couldn't do that movie because I couldn't get out of that girl. In fact, they they called. Was it Bluehorn? Somebody called Tom Moore, the head of ABC, and asked if he could let me out. And he said, "Are you crazy? She's the hottest new star we've got." <laughs> that. That, that girl was on.
0: So um, that didn't that didn't work. No, that didn't work. Well, let me yeah. ask this: Why didn't you consider changing your name?
1: I did. I did consider it. Uh, I uh, just uh, I went to my dad and said daddy I can't handle it and you know you've got so many years on me and I probably never be as famous as you are I mean my father was you know really a famous guy he and Lucille Ball you know held CBS in their hands I mean it was impossible I would I never believed that I would be anywhere near as famous as he was and I just didn't think i could stand it. it's like a tsunami you know of of uh comparison that no kid should take you know really um it's hard to be a, a a struggling person in the same field as your parent i would imagine it'd be even worse if if he'd been a woman and i would be compared you know in beauty yes. too Yeah. You know? yes but anyway um so i went to him and said i uh, I love you, Daddy, more than anything, but I can't. I just can't handle it. And I, I just want to be on my own and, and have a different name. And uh, he looked at me with those soulful brown eyes that you know so well. I sure he do. Said, he said to me, I raise you to be a thoroughbred. And thoroughbreds run their own races. They don't look at any of the other horses. They just wear their blinders and they run. And that's what you have to do. You don't look at me or any of the other horses. You just run your own race. And I was doing another play by that time under the Yum Yum tree uh, (laughs) in one of those little theaters somewhere, Ohio or someplace. And I got a big box at the dressing room door on the opening night. And I opened it up, and it was a pair of horse blinders, old dirty Uh horse blinders, and the notes, run your own race, baby. (laughs) I did, I did, I did.
0: I did uh, that. He was one hell of a father. God, what a yes. wonderful man he was. Yeah. And I had oh, so much fun with him, as you know.
1: Oh, oh I know. Well, yeah. you were such a good audience for him. He'd keep you on that sofa. I know. After, uh, everybody else had gone to dinner, and he had you captive. <laughs> I, wanted,
0: I wanted it. I, I said, tell me about Eddie Cantor. Tell me about <laughs> Al Chelson. I was totally hooked yeah I, I I love that. Tell me a little bit about London at that time. Was it swinging London? Was it really quite something? Oh
1: yeah yeah, yeah. It was before that girl. It was nineteen sixty four, I guess or five. And you know, everything was happening. Twiggy, Jean Shrimpton, all the the Cardan and uh, all the couture, all the fashion. Which is why that girl was so hot, because I brought all that, that fashion back, you know, fishnet stockings, white boots, mini clothes, and graphic design dresses and that we had, nobody had seen. I mean, uh, the most of the women on television were mothers, like Donna Reed, or they were fantasy women, like a witch, um, bewitched, or a genie in a bottle. So they didn't wear, they didn't have any fashion at all. I mean, Loretta Young had fashion on her show, but it was very sort of grown-up thing. What I was doing was all the mod clothes, and that's what I brought back. And also, there was so much theater. Um, I got to see Laurence Olivier uh, in Othello in yeah. '65. Well, I saw uh, I saw Maggie Smith and Albert Finney in Miss Julie. Can you so imagine cool. better casting?
0: And Then Maggie Smith
1: and Albert Finney. Oh my God! When he threw her on that table and then (laughs) raped her or had his way with her or whatever, uh, it was uh, an amazing theater. And my uh, plan—I was going out with Daniel Massey. Was you know when you're in your twenties, you go out with your leading man, especially if you're in a foreign (laughs) country and don't know anybody. And um, and my plan was to stay in London. I had made the pilot for that girl but you know most pilots don't sell I grew up in television so I figured it wouldn't sell. So my plan was to stay in London, you know, get try to get into the National Theatre and be a stage actress. That's what I loved doing. That's mostly what I did my whole, you know, career from like 17 years old until I was 23 or 4. I just did play after play. I did Everything you can imagine, all those little plays I told you about in Glass Menagerie, and Two for the Seesaw, all those plays with wonderful young oh, Laura, you know, in Glass Menagerie, is so wonderful, and oh. View from the Bridge, View from the mm-hmm. Bridge is another. All great parts for ingenues. So I did them all. So by the time I auditioned for Mike and Neil, I mean I was actually quite seasoned. You know I have yeah. no fear of the stage at all, and no no fear about auditioning. I, yeah.
0: I I know how did you handle rejection as a young woman? was were you able to do that? cause I mean, you're the apple of your father's eye. you're the oldest of three children. You certainly have authority right from the beginning, in your home. How do you handle rejection? You figure they have a problem, not you?
1: No, I cried. My father told me a great thing. He said, if you think you're scared, think how scared they are. I said, why? He said, they might pick the wrong girl. (laughs) He said, there's a lot of money goes into picking the right person. you know, And uh, it's better that they don't pick you than they pick you and have to fire you because you're not the right one. And he said, and also he said, if they want a tomato and you're a potato, you're not going to get it. It's as simple as that. People have in their mind what they want. He said, "He said, I know that from the casting that he did on all those shows. And later as a producer, I realized it too. You know, I'd be casting something, one of my specials or whatever, and a, a guy would walk in the room, and before he sat down, I knew he wasn't going to be right. Hmm. You know, yeah. there's that thing that you want from somebody. You want them to be scrawnier. Or you want them to be bulkier. I mean, there's so much that goes in to it. And Lee Strasberg used to say that too. He said, you know, no matter how good an actor you you are, you're not going to be right for every part. That's right. And they're going to know that you're the tomato and not the potato. I mean, that's just as simple as that. And so that helped. But I don't know, I, I cried a lot in parking lots in studios.
0: <laughs> you know, I knew right. I didn't get
1: the part. Yeah. It, it's hard. And I think that's why I did so much theater because i could get theater it was harder to get television you know and movies were out of the question but uh it it was easier to get theater
0: we're talking to actress author and producer marlo thomas we're now going to pause momentarily for some news about my audio book but we'll be right back after these short words
2: If you like audiobooks, then you will simply love the latest from Julian Schlossberg, entitled Try Not to Hold It Against Me. In his memoir read by the author, Schlossberg tells of negotiating with Al Pacino, Burt Reynolds, and Lillian Hellman, hosting the syndicated radio show Movie Talk, interviewing stars like Jack Nicholson, George Burns, Betty Davis, and Bob Hope. Experiencing the paranormal with Shirley MacLaine and Betty Hill. Restoring Orson Welles' masterly film Othello. Partying with Barbara Streisand and Liza Manilli, Testifying in a lawsuit against the Beatles, whom he loved. And interviewing over 140 major figures for his series Witnesses to the 20th Century. With a forward by Academy Award winner, Elaine May, Try Not to Hold It Against Me gives listeners the -the behind-the-scenes look at the rarely seen but crucial work of a producer. Schlossberg recounts the trials and triumphs of work and play as a theater, film and TV producer, and radio host. It's a -a one-of-a-kind autobiography read by one of entertainment's true insiders. Try Not to Hold It Against Me is available on Audible or wherever you get your audiobooks.
0: We're back with actress, author, and producer, Marlo Thomas. Well, before that girl, you did a pilot, which didn't sell, I gather, but it put you in front of the network executives. Is that, is that true? Is that what happened?
1: Yeah, yeah. I did a, a show, a pilot called Two's Company. Oh. Uh, and Yeah, and it kind of was like barefoot. It was a young couple who'd only been married a couple of weeks, the guy's a lawyer and she's, I forgot what she was, a model. She was a model. And her photographer was Paul Lind. And it had a lot of funny stuff in it. It was created, directed by a man named Peter. Forgot his name. I forgot. I'll think of it in a minute. He also did It's a Man's World, interestingly enough, with Teddy Bessell, He was a lovely man. And he picked me. I, I had a screen test. And I remember there were four blondes and me, and I thought, well, I'm definitely not going to get this. They want a blonde and on this little dark thing. Anyway, I get it, and uh, we make the pilot, and it was it was very cute, but uh, it didn't sell. And then I got a call that Edgar Sherrick, who was the head of ABC programming, wanted to see me. So my agent and I went to see him, and he told me that, Clairol had almost bought the show just because of me and that they felt that I could be a television star, but the show wasn't quite good enough, but Clairol wanted to find a show for me. You know, they, needed, they needed to sell shampoo you know, on a young girl, and there weren't, I guess, a lot of... Well, there were no young girl shows then, and um, except The Witch and The, and, 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 and the, and the, the Genie.
0: Body.
1: Yeah, yeah. And so Edgar said to me, "You uh, you've got a network and you got a sponsor. Hmm. Now we've got to come up with a show." And uh, and and so, by many means, we came up with a show. And uh, Clairol was my sponsor for the, all five years. I became very close to those people. And Edgar Sherrick, you know, is definitely he and Mike Nichols are the two people that believed in me and gave me really big breaks in the same year, practically. It was a really one-two punch. So I made that pilot, went to London, did Barefoot, was a big hit, and then it, then that girl sold. That was just such a, you know, it was a shock because I'd been around television my whole life. My father made lots of pilots that didn't sell, you know, with, with his cronies. Like He made one with Jan Murray. He made one with Joey Bishop. He made, you know, he was always looking to put his, his friends, his his fellow comedians into shows as, as they do now with, I mean Roseanne Barr is a lot of comedian Jerry Seinfeld, a lot of comedians get shows based on their their own talent and their material and Ray Romano's another one. So that was they were doing that even then. So so I knew that the, the the odds were it wouldn't sell.
0: But wasn't it your idea to have this young girl be not living yeah. with her parents? I mean, really you not only starred in it, but you ended up producing it like uh, your dad had done.
1: Yeah. Well, I certainly knew the ropes. What happened was is that Edgar Sherrick sent me uh, a bunch of scripts, maybe five, six scripts. And they were all, I, I didn't like any of them. And so I called him and asked him if I could come back and see him. And I said, every show here that you sent me, the girl is the wife of somebody, the secretary of somebody, the daughter of somebody. Did you ever think of doing a show where the girl is the somebody? And he said, No. Will anybody watch a show like that? And I said, <laughs> I said, Well, I think so. And I took out The Feminine Mystique by Betty Friedan out of my bag. And I said, You should read this because this is where it's going. And there was a woman at the time named Marina Bartos, who was the first female vice president of gray advertising. And there'd been a big article on her in some ad magazine. My dad had all those magazines. And so I read all that, that, that stuff. And the article from her was she told her colleagues that you can no longer sell cars by putting a woman in a bikini on the hood of the car. That's over. You have to, if you want to hit a moving target... You have to aim at where it's going, not at where it's been. And that's what I said to Edgar. I said, this is what Marina Bartow said. You have to aim at where it's going, not at where it's been. I said, I really think if you read this book, you'll see this is where it's going. And so about a week or so later, he called me. This is why we became such wonderful friends and colleagues, Edgar Sherrick and I. He read that damn book. Mm. You know, you've been an... A network executive, you've been a studio executive. You know damn well people don't read books, right? They have somebody else read it and That's tell them right. what it said. They
0: tell them about yeah. it. Tell them about it. Right.
1: right. And you can imagine what somebody would have said about that book, you know. Yeah. So, uh, uh, anyway, he called me. And the first thing he said to me was, is this going to happen to my wife? <laughs> you know, because <laughs> the women are leaving the coop. Uh, and uh, I said, oh, I'm sure not. Though it, it did happen. It, his wife did leave him. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, he, he's, he's, so we sat and talked about, and I said, I'd like to do a show about a girl like me I'm graduated from college. I don't want to get married. I want to get out of my parents' house. I want to live on my own. I want to go to the big city and live on my own and, and not get married. That's what I want to do. And he said, Oh God, I don't think America's going to take a show like that, you know? And, um. Uh, he said, first of all, people don't like show business. They don't like shows about show business. They're not interested in girls who don't have a family unit. And uh, and on and on. But there was a million reasons. And, and, you know, and also you're nobody, right? <laughs> so, yeah.
0: uh, May I mention I, that also, said he. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. And he used to do a thing they don't anymore. You probably remember from your network, days." They used to have a research group called Intention to View. And there were only three networks at the time, CBS, NBC, ABC. I mean, there were other little, you know, day, what do you call it? Locals. But the big three were the networks. I mean, Barry Diller hadn't even found Fox yet. So this is just three networks. So of the three networks, a show called That Girl Starring Nobody. About, <laughs> uh, about topics that nobody's interested in. Um, <laughs> was the last uh, the last like five in of the last intention to view, and the night we went on the air we got a forty share. Wow, it was just do you, it, you have any idea
0: why you got a forty share? Did you do a lot of yeah, publicity I, I, ahead of time?
1: Oh, sure, you always do publicity, but the other networks are doing publicity too. Yeah. I think it's because we hit the nerve, yeah, we had exactly what Rena Barto said. we had exactly what Betty for Dan said. Every home in America had a that girl in it. She wasn't a revolutionary figure. She was a fate accompli. She was there. And they just went, oh, my God. I mean, it was like seeing themselves for the first time. I mean, how many times have we been together where somebody said, oh, if it wasn't for you, I never would have come to New York? You know, she was a real role model for girls who did not want to get married, who did not want to live in their parents' house and wanted a career. That was a lot of people.
0: And and you were the first on the air. I think some people think you were second or third, but I think you were first. Isn't that true?
1: I definitely was first. Yeah. Yes. Billy Persky, who uh, wrote the first screenplay with his partner, Sam Denhoff, first of the pilot, said, that girl broke through the bunker and, 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 and all the other girls, Mary Tyler Moore and Rhoda and Kate and Allie and all of them, came afterward definitely they all they've all all given me credit
0: for that oh good i'm glad i wanted to ask you how is it you're a kid in your 20s you're the star and you're the producer and you're in a man's world in the 60s how did that affect you were you able to were there were people kind of pushing against your authority
1: some some were sam denoff was especially mean to me um his partner billy persky was not he he had sisters and he had three daughters oh. so he had billy had a another feeling about girls and and i was considered a girl uh not a woman i was the only woman in the room uh at the network meetings and that was the only woman in the room in our writers meetings and uh the second it was so my first year was hard. The network wasn't hard because I was popular star now. So, you know, they don't care well who you are or what you're doing. You're making them money. So that the network wasn't a problem. And of course editor was the boss and he adored me. We were, you know, we went on the limb together.
0: And Claire Oil was happy as hell, I'm sure, too. So there was no well, yeah. sponsor problem.
1: Right, no. So but in the writer's room it was. And so the first year was hard. I remember Sam, I, I didn't think something was funny. I was making fun of Ruth Buzzy's looks. She played my neighbor. And we had, um, we did a show where Rich Little and I had a computer date. Uh, and Rich Little comes to the door to pick me up and I'm changing my clothes. So I tell Ruthie Buzzy, who played, and her name was Ruthie on the show, She's going to go open the door to let Rich Little in. And he looks at her, and he looks at the photograph of me from the computer thing and says, she must have gone right through the windshield. That's the <laughs> oh, joke. Oh.
0: Well, that's right. tough. It's tough, funny.
1: Tough. And, yeah, yeah, So I said, no, I, I'm not going to do a joke about a woman's looks. Not going to do that. It's funny. And I said, it's not funny. I'm not going to do it. And this is a show that girls watch you know i can't put myself up there as the pretty one and the other and the ugly one we can't, i'm not going to do that joke so that was 2 weeks before the reading 2 weeks and then next week we'll read the rewrite and then we'll shoot that show so anyway so we file that away with all the notes and then we shoot this week's show and then next week we come back and this show is now on the table so we read it and Ruthie buzzes there and she has the line is still in it, and I'm just humiliated by it. And I said, Ruthie, forgive me. I'm so sorry. That joke is not going to see air. We are not going to do Sam picked up his script. He threw it across the room. I'm out of here. Throws it out. And uh, and Ruthie says to me, Marlo, I know what you're saying. I understand who you are, but this is my bread and butter. This is how I make my living. <laughs> By people making fun of her looks, as you know, from laughing and all those things, it was very—it was a horrible moment, and um, it should never have been there. And it's in the show, and the idea that it's still there just makes me cringe. Yeah, but it was an interesting thing. A producer was a nice man named Jerry Davis, but he was a, you know, a get along kind of guy, and. And I really wanted somebody tough. I wanted somebody strong and a really good writer. And uh, the William Morris office uh, uh, suggested Danny Arnold, who's who's just a genius. He's just brilliant. You know, he came he he uh, created barney miller. he and and he's a wonderful man. And I heard he was tough and uh, and that's good. My father used to always say to me, it's not the strong people that'll kill you. It's the weak ones. You, you know, <laughs> surround yourself with strong, talented people. Uh, and he named a few people who didn't do that and, and 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 didn't do well because of it. But he said, you hire strong people. You're tough enough. You you hire strong people. Anyway, so Danny came to meet me for lunch. And he said to me, I hear you're tough. I said, I hear you're tough. <laughs> he said... He said uh, uh, he said, I, I think you're talented. I'd like to work with you. Uh, but if you ever call me on anything in front of the cast and crew, I'll leave. I said, okay. I said, now here's my condition he is what I said, if you ever lie to me, I'll fire you. He said, I can keep that because everybody had lied to me. You know, if I said I wanted something, I wanted like a rear end projection for the car. Teddy and I are in a car and I wanted to see the city going by too expensive. It'll cost, you know, $12,000 or something. And so I would give in and then find out later it wouldn't have cost that. They just would lie to me, you know, because I'm a girl and whatever. And. So I, I just wanted somebody who would just say to me, let's not do it or we can't afford it. Here's what it would go, whatever, but not don't lie. Don't shut me up with your lies. And um, so anyway, Danny was a, a love affair. He was only going to come for one year. I begged him for one more. He stayed for two years and we were friends till the day he died. I just, I just adored him. I just, uh, he was so obsessed with the work. I remember I'd go home at nine o'clock at night, and I'd still see the light on in his office, and I'd think, oh, I'm going to go home and sleep like a baby.
0: <laughs> Somebody the cares <laughs> as much as I do, yeah. yeah. Somebody's finding
1: the story. you got to know that somebody's doing it.
0: Marlo, I would like you to explain to an audience, what is people say doing a series is so tough? To the outside world, it seems you've got glamour and money and excitement and everybody. What is it so tough about doing a weekly series?
1: Well, there's, there's two things. First of all, if you don't have good scripts or you don't have good writers, you're always, you know, lugging a, you know, a, a huge trolley car all by yourself up a hill. If, you don't, if it's not well written and it really isn't funny or it isn't believable or any of those things you're dead you're just dead it has to be I mean look at a show like Seinfeld and Raymond that you and I both love those are very well written shows the best they're well cast they're well written yeah and you never get tired of them I mean whenever I'm on my treadmill I throw one of them in and watch them because it's fun there's always fun so that's the one the big thing above all is getting the writers getting the material You know, and and getting it good enough—that's number one. The other thing is, it's just physically exhausting if you're going to do, you know, a one-camera, which we did. That girl was one-camera. My dad and Lucy, Seinfeld, Romano—they're all multi-camera with audiences. Friends. When I did Friends, I loved it. It was an audience, and I'm an audience person. I mean, I'm a—I come from the theater, so it was—I love it. I didn't want to do multi-camera on that girl because I wanted to learn how to work in front of a camera. Uh-huh. You know, I had so much experience on the stage, but I wanted to learn. You know how to act for the camera. You know, it's such a different medium. Completely. You know, so much smaller. So much. Everything. All you have to do is think, and it's on your face. You can't do that in the theater. So. Um,
0: did Danny Arnold? Did Danny Arnold want to go to three-camera? Or not? Uh-uh. No. no,
1: nobody wanted to because we weren't doing that kind of show. Mm. We weren't doing a yak yak show. I mean, when you watch Seinfeld or Lucy or Dad's Show or Ray Romano, I mean, there's a laugh almost every on every line. Our show was not like that. Our show was like an Audrey Hepburn movie. It was a it was a story show, and it had fun in it. But it, it wasn't. It's not the kind of show you could bring an audience in because they come in to laugh.
0: Yes, that's and true. Have,
1: and I didn't want to do that kind of show. I did. I mean, I love Lucille Ball, but I, I knew I wasn't Lucy. Yeah. I wasn't who I was going to be.
0: And physically, even in your twenties, it's exhausting, right?
1: Well, I get picked up at four thirty in the morning, and I'd get home at nine at night. Mm. And I remember sitting on the edge of my bed, eating a hard-boiled egg, soda crackers, and a ginger ale. That was my dinner. (laughs) And sometimes I would just sit there and cry. I was so tired. Yeah. I was so tired. I started having terrible headaches around 4 o'clock in the afternoon. And I went to the doctor one day, and I said, this got these awful headaches. He said, well, tell me about your day. I said, well, I get picked up at 4.30. I get to the the studio about 5.00. And then um get my makeup on at, at seven, uh, we do a blocking and seven thirty we start shooting. And so he said, So at four o'clock, you know, you've already put in like in a 10-hour day. Yeah. That's where you're having. Yeah. So uh, yeah. So he it was the beginning of nutrition in my life. Was, he put me together with a nutritionist and we started talking about what I would eat and when I would eat during the day and I and you know I don't like red meat now but I used to eat two two fillets at lunch Whoa. you know two yeah two steak mm-hmm. fillets to, to get you know and no and n- n- no carbs you know no french fries and stuff like that that I you know was living on you know hamburgers and french fries <laughs> that was out now I was eating salad and vegetables and and steak and
0: food real food Tell me now, you do, you're do. you on for five years. You do 136 shows. When did you decide it was enough? Was it you who decided? Because I remember I was at ABC. You were doing fine. You didn't have to go off the air.
1: No. I, by, truthfully, by the third, end of the third year, I was done. Oh. You know, I just – because it's, it's a grind – and, you know it's and and I was a young actress, you know, I'd have done all these plays and things. I wanted to do something else, you know, I did this now twenty five twenty six a season twenty seven I think the first year we did like something like thirty and then it went down down the whole the whole my in my dad's day they did like 38 39
0: shows.
1: and thirteen yeah right so i so we were at around thirty at first. But the whole industry was going down to like 27, 28. And so we were, too, with 22 reruns, which is where we made our money back, which they don't do anymore. Um, But that was great because I was the producer and I was, you know, I would be in trouble if we were over. And we were over some weeks, of course. And thank God we had those 22 reruns. So after the third year, you wanted to stop, but you didn't. I had a contract. I couldn't, couldn't. I had a five-year contract. No, I, I, I didn't go to them and say, can I get out of here? Right. But I was thinking, wow, this is, how am I going to do two more years of this? Hmm. You know, the same character, you know, in, unlike a soap opera where people grow and change, and even on Friends, those kids got married and divorced. I mean, it was like a soap opera. They had different storylines. On most shows, take Raymond or Seinfeld or Lucy or my dad's show and my show, it's almost like Little Orphan Annie. Yeah. They don't change,
0: right. you know. Yeah,
1: she after the five years and they wanted Teddy and I to come back married, and I said, "But that's not that girl. It, it, it's a different show. That girl is about a certain time in your life between you know your school and your family." before you make any big commitments, you know, that are going to happen in your life. This is the time of life when you're looking to find yourself. I mean, who's to say that Anne-Marie would have become a successful actress? But in every show, she had a lousy job and she had this boyfriend. So she can't get married and she can't become a star. That's not the show. That girl is a struggling actress who doesn't want to get married. Who's trying to be somebody in the big city? I mean, that's the show. You can't all of a sudden have her become a witch. I mean, that's the show. <laughs> but they
0: wanted and, you to get married and have a happy ending, I'm sure. Yeah.
1: They wanted a wedding. They wanted the last show to be a wedding. Everybody did. Even Billy Persky, who was always on my side. But I didn't want it. I felt it would betray my audience.
0: Yeah, you know, and, that and they didn't and you didn't have it. You didn't do it. Now, no. here, here's something that I want to say. At this point, you are really big in this country. And I know for a fact if you go on the cover of any magazine, it's their biggest seller for the year or the month or two years or five years. And you decide, I'm really, I'll tell you, i tip my hat to you if I wore one. Uh, you decide to decide you're going to go study acting. Because you don't feel what? Why are you doing that?
1: Well, um, I was offered a script called Crackers. And it was a true story of a woman. I think her name was Barbara. And she uh, was an alcoholic. So it was a story of this woman who was an alcoholic and her struggle with her family and her to, to come back from that. So I read it, and I was I, it was a good part. But I thought, I don't have any idea how to do this. I can do a funny drunk. I can fall over and be hilarious.
0: (laughs) You can slurry words. You can slurry words, yes.
1: Right. Uh, You know, the Dick Van Dyke drunk. Uh, But I didn't know how to do this. And so I was talking to my friend, Chuck Roden, who was a wonderful, wonderful actor. And I told him my dilemma. I said, I don't know what to do. And, um, you know, I think I should study with somebody. He said, if you're going to study, come to New York and study with Lee Strasberg. He said he's the best. So I came to New York and I asked for a meeting with him. And he was kind of a scary guy. He didn't smile. He looked a little mean or gruff. He really wasn't. It just was, that's the face he had. So I. He said to me, So you got a lot of awards and you're really popular and you're a big star. What do you want to study here for? And I said, Well, I've gotten along on on some good comedy chops and a lot of charm. And he said to me, Don't look a gift horse in the mouth, darling. <laughs> <laughs> Which I loved that, you know. <laughs> I thought he, he was going to say, oh, "We got to get rid of that crap," you know. <laughs> no, look—a gift horse in the mouth, darling. And that's when I told him the story about crackers. You know that I don't know how to do this, so I got in, and uh, and then, as you recall, after I studied there, I did three television movies in a row. Consenting Adult, where I played the mother of a kid who comes out uh, as homosexual to his mother, based on a a wonderful book um, by the woman who wrote The Man in the Gray Flannel Suit, what the hell, Laura Dobson, Laura, Laura, Laura Z, Z Dobson. Laura Z, yeah. I yeah. yeah. uh, read that. Then I did The Lost on of Catherine Beck, and I was getting really good reviews as a dramatic actress. And then I did Nobody's Child and won the Emmy. for best dramatic actress. I would have never been able to play that schizophrenic, not in a million years, had I not studied with Lee and Sandra Seacat, another
0: great teacher. That ends part one of my interview with Marlo Thomas.
2: Thanks for joining us on Julian Schlossberg's Movie Talk. Remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Produced by Audavita Studios. Connect your voice to the world.